Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Oxfam, the once world-renowned charity aid agency, campaigning organization, hit a new low today when it was reported that they had decided to cancel J.K. Rowling, uh, the best-selling author ever, and of course, uh, the uh, author of Harry Potter. What she did wrong, we will examine. But let's first analyze why a charity charged with raising the maximum amount of money for its presumably good causes decided to prioritize the point of view of what they described as our transgender members of staff over the fundraising that J.K. Rowling was facilitating. It sounds pathetic, really. It was a board game, a bingo game, in which J.K. Rowling was one of a number of famous women. It was a pro-women thing. Maybe that was its problem. It was showcasing successful women in a board game. It was on sale in the charity shops belonging to Oxfam, but no longer. Oxfam decided to remove it. Oxfam decided to cancel J.K. Rowling. I have therefore cancelled Oxfam, and I'm encouraging other people to do the same. I had long harbored doubts about supporting Oxfam because of a number of scandals in which they have been involved over recent years, but I was still supporting them, but no longer. I've had enough of the cancel culture. Haven't you? We'll be asking in a poll later about Dave Chappelle. Now, I had never heard of Dave Chappelle. I'm sorry, it's my age and class and my tastes in comedy. I had never watched him. I was vaguely aware of his existence, but couldn't have put a name to the face or a face to the name. Now I've watched all of his work. Why? Because transgender members of the staff of Netflix are trying to have him cancelled because of his comedy routine, which asserted, as J.K. Rowling has asserted, and as I now assert, a man cannot become a woman by the mere self-declaration of that transition. A man should not be housed in a penitentiary for women just because he has decided to identify as a woman. A crime 
committed by a man should not be ascribed to women just because the criminal has self-identified as a woman. A man should not be playing in sports that are reserved for women just because he has declared that he is a woman. That way lies the end of women's sports. We saw what happened at the uh, recent championships when New Zealand fielded a weightlifter who was in fact a man who identified as a woman and who was able to blow away uh, the female competition. How much more so in a boxing ring? How much more so on a wrestling mat? How much more so in running and in other forms of athletics? A man must not be allowed into women's changing rooms, women's spas, girls' changing rooms. Girls should not have to get undressed in front of men just because those men identify as women. Now, it may be my age and class, but nothing that I've just said there is remotely controversial to me. Nothing, not one word of what I have said is remotely contentious. It has the benefit of being biologically, scientifically true, absolutely unassailably true. But in fact, everything I just said there would get me cancelled off Netflix, would get me withdrawn from sale in Oxfam, would get me drummed out of my university post as an academic if I said it and I was a university professor. This is madness. The stating of the truth becomes a cause for cancellation, for witch hunting, for losing your job, losing your career. What madness is this? Well, it's the madness that we are currently in. Not content uh, with the uh, transmania uh, of uh, public bodies up and down this country, not content with that, alongside it has begun a campaign for the cancellation of the word and the idea of woman itself. My daughter, recently given birth, was at a chest feeding class last week. Chest feeding, not breast feeding, chest feeding. In virtually every health board in the country, women's health has been airbrushed off the map. You cannot now find women's clinics, women's health departments. You cannot find any reference to pregnant women anymore. It's pregnant people, even though only women can be pregnant. We're being told uh, that there are men with cervixes. I saw a reference today to a male placenta. All of this has gone completely bonkers. And the Scottish government, 
so-called, in fact, a devolved provincial administration, has decided to be in the vanguard of this question, if only on this question. The fact that our COVID outcomes this day are not just the worst in Britain, but the worst in Europe and one of the worst in the world. Yes, that's right. All these liberal chatterati who told you that Nicola Sturgeon was handling the pandemic better than the buffoon Boris Johnson were all lying. She's handled it much worse even than the buffoon Boris Johnson. We're in the vanguard of all of these gender issues. We've abolished the term mother. Can you believe that? Mother. Without mother, none of us would be here. All of us love, revere, respect our mothers, except in Scotland, where the word mother will no longer be uttered in official communications. This madness has gone far, far, too far, has it not? And I'll tell you why. Because nobody has the guts to stand up for it. The university teaching union, when one of its leading members, a distinguished academic at Sussex University, was witch-hunted out of her position, effectively, her trade union sided with the witch-hunters and against her. Who's standing up for Dave Chappelle in Netflix? The chief executive just apologized for his uh, shtick that had uh, actually impressed with its sensitivity on the subject of the undoubted travails of being a trans person. His sensitivity, his love for his friend, a trans person, didn't save him. He may yet be cancelled off Netflix, like J.K. Rowling has been cancelled by Oxfam. We'll be talking about this today because actually there are very few spaces in which it is any longer possible to speak about this matter. You'll be pelted with eggs or worse. A researcher in the British House of Commons, of course a researcher for the SNP, has had his House of Commons pass just cancelled by the Speaker because he was involved in a Twitter timeline that actually called for Antifa to turn up outside the meetings of those women who won't wished, those women who will not be silent, will not be silenced, will not be wiped off the historical map. And one of the tweets had an Antifa woman with an automatic weapon in her hands. And they all said, it's about time this happened outside the turf 
meetings and conventions going on around the country. You're in trouble if you speak like I'm speaking now. It's only on RT that you can do so. If I were on any other television channel right now, I would already have been cut off. And as it happens, President Putin of Russia said two vitally important things in his long talk uh, to Western media and academics in Valdai, in Sochi, just this week. He said two things that were a standout for me. The first was that the form of capitalism practiced in Western countries today has completely failed and will have to be ditched because it is incapable of squaring the circle. It is incapable of resolving its own internal contradictions. Something that I strongly believe in and have been advocating, arguing everywhere for many, many years. But the other thing that President Putin said was that the mere assertion of biological truth and fact inevitably, ineluctably, in Western countries now has been criminalized and outlawed. Children are being encouraged to change genders. Children are being encouraged to imagine uh, that there are 99 or is it 101 genders. Anyone who states, as I'm stating now, that men are men and women are women, if a man wants to dress as a woman, act like a woman, that's fine by me. I don't give a toss what anybody else does with their life, with their wardrobe, in their bedroom, in their bed. I don't genuinely care one thing about it. If a man wants me to treat them as if they were a woman, I'm more than ready and happy to do it. Just don't accept, don't expect me to agree with your assertion that you are in fact a woman and that you have the right to go into my daughter's changing room, into her spa or into the boxing ring for women with her. I'm stating these facts because it's not safe for other people in other places to do so. I will not be cancelled by RT for doing so because here at RT we believe in the truth and moreover we believe in freedom of speech. As Ricky Gervais said this week, if you don't believe in freedom of speech for those you disagree with, you don't believe in freedom of speech. You're not a liberal. You're not a progressive. And one day, somebody will come to cancel you and there'll be nobody left to defend you. We'll be talking about all these matters. We'll be talking about the 59th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. When I was a child, I lived just a few miles from a Royal Air Force base called Lukers. And I went to bed, age seven, 
Having heard my parents talk the night before that we were on the brink of a third world war, and in the morning I heard the airplanes from Lucas, and I pulled the covers over my head because I believed uh, that the bomb was about to be dropped. Mercifully, most of you will never have felt that fear as a child, as an adult, that war was imminent between nuclear armed superpowers. It's very important though, to remember and try to empathize with how that felt and what it would mean. I say that because China has just developed a hypersonic weapon which can circle the entire world and hit its target. And it's capable of being nuclear armed. It left the United States, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, they said, breathless. It defies the laws of physics, they said. In that case, hear me well. Withdraw your warships from the South China Sea. Nobody wants to die for the Spratly Islands. Nobody wants to die because China is determined to reunite one of its own provinces, Taiwan, with the motherland. Because that's what the majority of Taiwanese want. That's what the international law states, that Taiwan is a part of China. But Britain and the mighty navy of the Netherlands and several other Mickey Mouse military forces, like pedalos, are currently peddling like hell alongside the American gunboats in the South China Sea. People say to me, well, we're not going to make a war against China, but what if China makes a war against you? What if China says, we're not going to be pushed around anymore? The days when foreigners could dispatch gunboats into our waters has passed. And we've got the weapons that can sink every one of your ships in an instant. What if China takes the decision out of our hands because these provocations have gone on long enough? We'll be talking to Rachel Blevins in America about Donald Trump. We'll be talking to James Giles about Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, whose budget will be delivered. Today we'll be talking about politics in the small and in the large and in the round. After all, this is the mother of all talk shows. Uh, now look, here's the podcast report. The podcast is again, a chart-topping five-star hit all over the world this week. Our podcast listenership is growing all over the world, 92 countries to be exact. How many more countries are there? Which countries are we not in? Uh, we are uh, chart-topping success, believe this or not. In Mexico, Pakistan, Germany, Hong Kong, to name just a few. And of course, 
here in the UK. If you're not yet listening to our podcast, which is a distilled 90-minute version of this three-hour show, subscribe so you can take Moats on the go with you. Leave us a five-star review, if you will, on Apple Podcasts. If you're a Spotify user, please follow us and share with your friends so more people can enjoy Moats. Let's see if we can top the charts in your country. I do want to uh, get a list, if I can, uh, of the countries we're not yet charting in so that we can have a, a special uh, drive on those. Uh, a couple of uh, social media comments. Uh, Grandma354 says, comedy is comedy, and people should be able to see things in context. And Love and Light says, make no mistake, Dave said some awful stuff in his special. However, he's working on getting better. What does that mean? Uh, I think he should continue to work on it, but I don't think he should be cancelled. I don't see malice in his act, but I do see room for improvement. Why don't you call us up and tell us what it was about Dave's act that was pretty awful stuff? Because I watched it and I didn't see it. Maybe you need to educate me. Gareth Quinn says, no, because most people aren't massive wet wipes. And Desmundo says, bullying someone to the extent that they're afraid to say what they think can never end well. Good point. And uh, Kov Kovichny says the LGB, sorry, the LGTB Sikh community has been scoring more own goals in these last few years than Jamie Carragher has in 17 years at Liverpool. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Seems to me, uh, first of all, that uh, lesbian and gay people are amongst the most strenuous opponents uh, of this transmania, particularly lesbians. Uh, lesbians are uh, overwhelmingly uh, opposed to the cancellation of women. They like women. They like women just the way they are. They don't want a guy who has declared himself to be a woman to think that they're being bigoted because they don't want to sleep with them. It's kind of not rocket science, that, if you think about it. And Wayne Okay says you should call those advocating for his cancellation racist. That'll shut them up. Dave is, of course, a black man. Uh, Barty the Shark says he takes the mick out of so many groups, but only the trans lobby are kicking off. The real question is, why is that? And Robert says, of course he shouldn't be cancelled. And if those wanting to cancel him actually took the time to watch and listen to what he says, they might realise they're wrong about him, especially after the story of his friend who killed herself. And Frederick Berger says his last show is more like a documentary than a stand-up comedy show. Every statement is backed up by facts. Facts, facts, who cares for facts, Frederick? And Ian Sankey says, Dave Chappelle implied that trans women are not real biological women. This is the truth, and the truth sometimes hurts. Indeed. Now, uh, Dr. Bob Gill is with us now because 
the COVID story is coming back. Uh, there's a plan A, though nobody quite knows what's in it. And there's a plan B, and the Labour opposition sometimes calls for a move to plan B, but sometimes sticks with plan A. Uh, it's all very uh, bamboozling. Certainly the number of cases uh, is going up, uh, although the rate of increase has begun to fall. Uh, the number of hospitalizations also up. The number of deaths in Britain is up. Uh, and we thought we needed some medical attention uh, to this issue. Dr. Bob Gill is himself, of course, uh, a GP, but also a filmmaker whom we have interviewed many times about his great work in defense of the National Health Service. Dr. Bob, thanks uh, for coming uh, on the show on this subject this time. Tell us how you see the current picture of the coronavirus in Britain, if you would. Thank you, George. Well, compared to our European neighbors, we seem to be uh, the worst performing. That's because we're following a strategy of vaccination and nothing else, whereas other countries are doing a vaccination plus strategy, which is to leave in measures that mitigate the risk and the spread of the virus. So we're doing relatively badly compared to similar economies abroad. And we, we really have to start asking um, whether this is a competence issue or does the continued chaos, the continued strain on the NHS provide some political advantage to this government? But, of course, if you do a lot of testing, I myself did two tests in the last uh, week or so, if you do a lot, uh, mercifully uh, both negative, but if you do a lot of testing, you're going to find a lot of cases. That's not in itself disastrous, is it? No, but uh, you're, you're right. The cases may be going up, but the, the more important figure is the hospitalisation rate. So there are thousands of COVID-positive patients in hospital at the moment related to complications of COVID. Now, that's having a devastating effect on the provision of services. We saw down in the southwest, uh, you know, a line of 20 ambulances waiting to drop off patients who are sick, who require hospitalisation, but there are no beds for these people. And you know, the, the decisions that the government made in the way it handled the pandemic, we recently heard that one of the private contractors they hired to do PCR tests had released 43,000 incorrect test results. So the pandemic response has been a, an expensive catastrophe, catastrophe from the beginning. Now, you know, what advantages uh, does the pandemic provide to the government? Well, it provides quite a few. It creates an atmosphere of fear. This atmosphere of fear allows them to bring in vaccine passports, which they can extend for other uses later on. The, it also shakes the confidence of the public and the staff in the NHS. They, they, they start to believe that this system can't cope. And currently through Parliament, we have the Health and Care Bill, which is going through, which is the final transition to an American-style managed care system. And all this chaos distracts from what they're up to with health policy. And, and, and what have they got to lose? They have a feeble opposition. They have a quiet legacy media. There's nothing to lose. There's no electoral loss and there's no legal threat to them. You know, we know that our politicians can implement disastrous policy that leads to 
mass preventable deaths. Sir David King estimated 100,000 COVID-related preventable deaths. Nobody's going to prison because we have got something called Crown Indemnity, which protects our politicians who, in the course of their duties, inadvertently kill thousands of people. Well, let's go back to the vaccination issue. Uh, we came up with the vaccine, uh, Oxford-AstraZeneca. Uh, we handled the rollout better than uh, more or less everybody else in the Western countries, at least. Uh, the vast majority of us are vaccinated twice. Um, and yet people are still getting it. Do you get the impression that the vaccine isn't quite what it was cracked up to be as a defence? Well, it, it provided everybody with a great sense of hope because they saw the government wasn't doing anything else which, which would prevent the spread of the pandemic. But we've known, as soon as the studies became available, that although it modifies how sick people get, if you've had both vaccines, the chances of you dying from getting reinfected are, are very much reduced, but it doesn't prevent transmission and the immunity you get from the vaccine starts to wane after a while, hence, hence the push for the booster. So the vaccine was never going to be a cure-all, I'm afraid. Um, so that's why other countries are following vaccination plus, a vaccination plus mitigation policy, and that's why we're doing so badly. Well, you say we only did the vaccination, or, but, but that's not right, is it? We, we had a, a draconian lockdown. We had... Uh, the closure of huge sections of our economy. Yeah, well, uh, if well, we go back to that, the country yeah. will be ruined, surely. Yeah, the, so the lockdowns were a testament to the government's failure to respond to this properly. They never had a sensible test and trace system. The system they had was hugely expensive, fragmented and outsourced to an accountancy firm who has no experience in managing a pandemic. And people who were positive weren't supported to isolate. So it was a totally chaotic and very expensive system. The lockdowns were a testament to the failure that we had in response to the pandemic. There was some relief once the immunization program started to get roll out. And you're right, we did very well. Again, the vast bulk of the work uh, in terms of vaccinating people was done by the NHS. So the very institution that this government is set up to fail is the one that helped them out of a desperate situation. And lockdowns are a, an extremely blunt tool which should never have been used, never, never have been needed had the government followed rational, basic public health measures. So what should happen now? Uh, you, I mean, I've just been in, uh, in Europe. Uh, it's certainly true that uh, more people are wearing masks there in the street and in... Uh, in uh, big public places. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's true that if you wear a mask, you might not infect someone else or they you uh, quite so easily, but the mask doesn't provide very much in the way uh, of protection either way. Um, uh, what else can, can we do? Yeah, I think it's important to complete the vaccination program. Again, there are a lot of people, the vast majority are vaccinated, fortunately, over the age of 50. We've vaccinated the vulnerable groups. We know that the 
protection starts to wane. So there, there's a booster program which people who are in the high-risk groups should uh, get along and get themselves uh, topped up with the vaccine. Uh, but there are other mitigations. So we, we never attempted to mitigate the spread of the virus within the schools. Now, there are many pupils up and down the country who are getting infected and obviously taking this home to their families. So that's, that's a problem that this government never addressed. And there are other basic public health measures that we haven't enforced. So, so that is the problem. And, and I, I believe there are political advantages in the eyes of this government for, for this to drag out and to perpetuate the climate of fear so they can bring in other legislative goals that have nothing to do with the handling of the pandemic. Well, you, you say that, but the, the, the government has thrown money around like, uh, like a, a drunken sailor, albeit into some strange pockets. £37 billion for uh, track and trace, uh, which is, has been... Uh, in some places, at some times, uh, uh, an almost criminal uh, fiasco. Um, but the money that the Treasury has spent uh, on uh, supporting the economy, supporting companies, paying furlough and so on, that's not in the government's interest, is it? No, but if you, if you look at where this money is ending up, it's not ended up in... Uh, boosting up the public sector. It hasn't ended up creating extra capacity within the NHS. It hasn't gone to support local councillors or councils in providing a response to all of this. It's gone to private corporations. And the Public Accounts Committee themselves said that the 37 billion that went to Serco, Deloitte, Test and Trace had no tangible effect on preventing the lockdown. So, you know, one way of looking at this is we have a blatant looting of the treasury where is this money all going you know that these are the questions what, what what sort of a country are we living in where money goes in and there's no end product that is the problem we have the furlough scheme yes it was very expensive it was necessary but it's necessary because the government failed basic public health you know a billion a lot of people find it difficult to compute what a billion is if you made a billion into seconds on a clock, it would take 31 years of seconds for one billion. We spent 37 billion on the track and trace, and I'm one of those who believes that it would actually be impossible, even if the money had been spent well, and it wasn't, to expend that amount of money on anything, really. Certainly not on a track and trace. Yeah, these are eye-watering figures, but just, just think what they refuse to spend money on. They refuse to spend money on supporting uh, working-class people to stay at home whilst they were isolating with the infection. They refuse to do that. For the whole, you know, millions of people who are on uh, precarious contracts, the gig economy, they never supported these people. So what did they do? They ended up carrying on working and spreading the infection. The money went to large multinational corporations who have done extremely well out of the pandemic. The vaccine that we all paid for, the research for, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is 97% publicly funded, the patent for that was given over to a private company. We're being ripped off and people are dying as we are being ripped off. So this, 
this is the worst of all worlds that this government has dealt to the population. So what do you expect, uh, Doc, uh, over the next week, two weeks? Are these numbers going to keep spiking or might they begin to fall away? Well, then there may be a bit of a lull because we have a school half term at the moment across most of the country. So that might uh, put a natural break on things. But certainly the, the, the health, public health experts in Independent Sage are predicting that perhaps that we need a, another sort of circuit breaker event to slow down the spread of infection and to stop the overwhelming of NHS hospitals. I don't think that the public, I mean, obviously anecdotal evidence is always dangerous and the polls do indicate something different. But my sense is that people will not accept another lockdown. They will not accept another cancelled Christmas. Uh, they will not accept not being able to hug their mother. Uh, is that your sense also or not? I think people will certainly resent uh, having to give up their freedoms, give up their social arrangements and restrict their movements, no doubt about it. People are fed up and that's why we're seeing the sort of booster program stalling in this country because people are fed up with the restrictions they've had to endure. But that doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. Um, so, you know, but what price will this government pay? We have a totally absent opposition. There is no political price for this government to pay. Fair point. Uh, Dr. Bob Gill, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk to shows. I talk to a former colleague of mine, Dr. Enrique Rivera from the United States, former colleague of mine on RT America, because he's written a very important book. It's called The Untold History of Capitalism. Let's hear what he has to say about that book. Uh, Dr. Enrique, thank you for joining us. Um, why untold? Uh, as far as I know, all the history I've ever been taught was the history of capitalism. What's, what is there that is untold? Well, there's, that's a great point. I mean, all the history of the modern world is, is really the history of capitalism, right? But um, unfortunately, it's only a relative few, especially in the West, that, that get to uh, hear the, the real history. As far as what's untold in this, I think there's there's two uh, original arguments here. One is, um, well, first of all, we we talk about capitalism, we throw the term around um, rather loosely, and I think we do this across the political spectrum, you know, um, and uh, and but we don't kind of sit down and ask, well, what is what is capitalism? What makes our contemporary economic system different from the previous ones that have existed? Uh, in human history. And so one of the things I do is I, I, I say, hey, look, you know, we've got to look back at, at what the definition is. And so we, I, I go back to that. And I think in order to do that, you have to go back to Marx, um, who I think really uh, hit the nail on the head. Uh, historically speaking, he was able to really say, you know, what makes this contemporary or modern economic system different from, from the previous ones. And then I say, well, but, you know, Marx is great, but, um, but, Marx's period, time period that he came up with, he says the dawn of, of capitalism is in the 16th century. But when I go through the investigation in my book, which is really a, a micro history 
So I'm looking at this little local story and I'm trying to really hone in on it to tell a much wider, bigger story. In this case, the history of capitalism, as big as the story can get. Um, and uh, what I find is actually capitalist production developed much, much later than is uh, uh, than Marx presumed. And as uh, many uh, uh, historians, whether they're Marxists or not, um, have have uh, have also concluded. And so um, I think that's one one important aspect that that is hasn't really been told. Um, the other aspect of 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 the uh, of the book is that I talk about it's. What the story that I'm honing in on is an anti-slavery rebellion. Uh, it's an anti-colonial rebellion as well. It's in Venezuela in 1795. In Venezuela, this is a really big deal. This is a precursor to Simon Bolivar's Wars of Independence. Afro-Venezuelan month in Venezuela is in, in commemoration of this rebellion. Um, in the West, we don't know that much about it. Uh, but, um, you know, historians tend to credit kind of during this period in the late 18th century, 1790s, et cetera, early 1800s, you see this explosion of anti-slavery rebellions by enslaved people um, all over the place, all over the Caribbean, all over the Americas, sugar fields, cotton plantations are being burned to the ground all over the place. Um, and but the, 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 capitalism doesn't uh, imply slavery. It's a different kind of slavery, maybe. Uh, but uh, yeah. capitalism... Slavery emerged in a pre-capitalist uh, era, long, long, long before capitalism, and in fact is an affront to capitalism, which wants everybody to be a consumer, everybody to be a market. And of course, if large numbers of people are enslaved, they don't have money by definition, they can't be a consumer. Exactly. Exactly. Enslaved people are, are bad consumers. And so even though slavery could be an extremely profitable enterprise, and it certainly was at the time, it's it's its potential is really, really limited. Um, you know, you can't sell an iPhone to someone who doesn't make a, an income. And the, the kind of the brilliance of, of capitalism is that they're able to what it does is it, it forces us to become consumers in order to survive. We have to purchase our necessities. Uh, our, our necessities are put in the market as as um, as commodities. So whether it's food, uh, drink, or housing, or clothes, right? But as history progresses, as uh, economic, uh, as countries develop economically, those subsistence needs, those things that we need to do to survive, increase rapidly. You know, and so you know, we didn't need an iPhone ten years ago, right? And I mean, try to hold the job without a smartphone. It's it's a difficult thing to do today. And so. Um, that's that that's that's the thing with with slavery is that um, although it could have been although it was enormously profitable there there really wasn't that potential that you find under capitalism. It had no future. No, I mean I come from the country Scotland where the first uh, real theorist uh, of capitalism Adam Smith uh, also came from. Uh, I think that if Adam Smith was here today, he would not describe what we have today as capitalism uh, in the way that he defined it. Uh, I was talking earlier to a guest about, uh, about the state expenditure, for example, uh, through the pandemic. Uh, some people say there are no socialist countries anymore, not purely socialist anyway, but there are not actually any purely capitalist countries anymore, are there? There are 
sections of the economy that remain uh, owned by the state. State expenditure is absolutely indispensable. Uh, capitalism in Britain would have collapsed if not for the state uh, over the last uh, 18 months, two years of, uh, of the pandemic. Companies don't go to the wall if they fail. They get nationalized like the banks in 2008. None of these are really capitalist things, are they? Well, see, I think that that's where Smith, the, where Marx departs from Smith, and that Smith, um, I think, frankly, was wrong. He, he had this idea of the modern economic system as being completely divorced from the state, and it was completely in the hands of, of private hands, and, and that's where it needed to be. The truth is, and, and Marx knew this well, and, and I think we've known this for, for quite some time, is that um, the state has been intricately involved in capitalist development. There is no capitalism without the state. Um, before, if we look way back, right, and if we look at, at Scotland, you no, know, for example, I don't know that history uh, totally. I know England a little better, but let's say England in the 18th century. Um, there are people who are living, they're small farmers, basically peasants. No, and they live off the land and they pay their tax to the feudal lord or whatever. Well, you have to get those people off of the land so that they can work for a wage, so that they can work for these new industries. And the way that you do that is you get a state to do it. Um, so you get the state to come in and say, hey, uh, this isn't your land anymore. This is uh, our land. You know, these aren't, you know, you can't use those tools anymore. We're going to use these tools. And, uh, and so even so from capitalism's birth, from its genesis, the state was, has always been intricately involved. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's been the case ever since. This myth, this idea um, that is espoused um, that uh, limited state interference uh, is, uh, is what has driven economic development is just a flat out uh, lie. There's actually no historical basis um, for that, uh, for that uh, position. In fact, states have been, you know, if you look at the, the, the most recent uh, economic success stories, it's because, you know, there, there's very, very involved um, uh, state planning um, and they're able to basically um, tell private capital where they're going to be doing their thing. You know? Well, they certainly do that in China. I mean, you could argue that the most successful capitalist country in the world right now is China. And that's because it has a strong state which has uh, a guiding uh, role, plays a guiding role in the development of the economy. Maybe we should all model our economy on the Chinese economy. Uh, I think you're certainly right. China is a huge success story, and especially for the under, underdeveloped countries. Um, and and this, this thing that is being shoved um, down the poor countries next, IMF, uh, restructuring, these are completely antithetical to, to economic development. Um, yes, uh, China is a, is a capitalist country. Its economy is capitalist. It's run by a communist party who has carefully planned uh, its economic development. And uh, this gets to, and I think that, you know, people on the left, uh, where I find myself, don't, don't really like to hear these sorts of things. But the truth is that, um, Capitalism can be used as a way to uplift the standards of living for for uh, a population that is um, that is uh, you know trapped in, in, in generational poverty, um, like is the case in in the underdeveloped world. And so China has done that quite brilliantly. I think you see um, Vietnam doing it now as well. Cuba 
would would love to do it. Cuba is is the next success story. If only they could get over this pesky blockade. And I think that's why the United States doesn't want to do it, because I think the world would change if, if that blockade was lifted over Cuba. Well, good luck with the book, uh, Dr. Rivera, The Untold History of Capitalism. How do people get it? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, well, it's available online. You can get it through the publisher, international publishers. It's on Amazon as well. Uh, Jeff Bezos, I don't think, likes the book because uh, uh, they keep, they keep uh, selling out of it. Uh, and they won't buy more copies from the publisher. So if you if you try if you if you put it on your on your list on Amazon, uh, it'll 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 get to you soon. Well, I'll be one of your customers, and we'll talk again. I'm sure after I've read it. Dr. Enrique Rivera, the Untold History and of Capitalism. Ideas. Thanks for uh, joining to us to the United uh, States the to the eminently culture. sensible and totally wonderful Rachel Blevins. Rachel, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, what's your take on that? What, who do you think should be the next James Bond? Don't say me because you know, that would be partial. You know, I would, I would think it's one of those cases where the internet may be trolling you a little bit. I apologize. I've got my puppy barking in the background. He, of course, did really, really good until I came on air. Don't and worry. now he decided that he wanted to join in the conversation well, as it's well. A, it's a very exciting um, topic. Uh, maybe he's got a point of view on it. He does. All right, I'll give you another one here. I have actually never seen a single James Bond movie ever, so I don't know that I'm your one to uh, pick the next you're, one you're in this fight. You're terribly fight. young, you see, and so talented. Uh, no one could believe how young you are, so I'll forgive you for that. But uh, the, the, the last one, the latest one uh, of uh, Craig, Daniel Craig, is actually a pretty good movie. Uh, let me move on uh, on the subject of movies, a much sadder story. I should make it clear, Alec Baldwin is a friend of mine, introduced by our mutual friends, uh, Max and Stacy. 
uh, of uh, RT. Uh, I, I like uh, Alec Baldwin like a brother. And so the disaster, the tragedy that took place on the film set uh, of uh, Rust, I think the film's called, uh, where mm -hmm. the talented young woman cinematographer was accidentally shot dead and the film's director actually uh, mildly wounded because uh, the prop gun turned out to be a real gun or at least to have a real bullet in it. It's an utter devastating tragedy, of course, firstly for the woman and her family, uh, but also for Alec Baldwin because it's quite clear to me that the media are out to get Alec Baldwin. They are desperately trying to blame him for this tragedy. What can you tell us about it, Rachel? It is a tragedy. And I think that, you know, this was one of those cases where it seems like everything just went wrong. And I know that, you know, what Alec Baldwin has said was that he obviously did not know that there was a live round in the gun. It sounds like the assistant director handed him the gun, said, you're good to go, and he didn't check it. And unfortunately, it is one of those reminders of the very basics of gun safety, which is that if you're handling a gun at all, you have got to check it. And you've got to assume that every gun has a live round in it, even if you have someone there telling you otherwise. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes people don't quite realize it. They don't, they're not as on top of it as they should be. I think it is interesting to see all of the things that we've heard from this so far in terms of the fact that the assistant director, Dave Halls, we're learning a little bit more about him, about him being called out called out when he was on movie sets in the past and really you know he's had a number of complaints against him about unsafe environments about not taking firearms and pyrotechnics seriously and i mean those are some of the most basic things you want to make sure that your assistant director is on top of all of that especially when they're in charge of people's lives as we're seeing in this case and he also i guess was involved with another film where brandon lee was shot and killed in a similar incident and that's the first thing that everyone was comparing it to saying wait a second didn't this happen with brandon lee back in the 90s and so it is absolutely tragic that it has happened again and I know that there have been reports that a number of union workers walked off the set earlier in the day because they said that the conditions weren't safe. And it just is a reminder of how seriously they all should be taking every aspect of that. With Alec's support, by the way, he was a big union man, Alec Baldwin, and he absolutely, in fact, he encouraged them. He said, if you feel you have to, go on strike uh, because these studio bosses don't give a damn uh, about you. Uh, he's one of the good guys, Alec Baldwin, I've got to tell you that. I know a lot of Trump supporters hate him uh, because of his Saturday Night Live thing, uh, but they should uh, put that uh, to one side. Alec Baldwin is a very fine actor. Uh, he's a proper blue-collar man, uh, and, uh, and I feel so badly about the whole thing. Now, look, staying on, if you like, entertainment issues, we ran a poll tonight, which overwhelmingly supported Dave Chappelle. I wish the Netflix management uh, would stand up as resolutely uh, for him. What's your take on the move to cancel Dave Chappelle? You know, I think it's almost comical in that sense that, you know, people are suddenly saying they're going to cancel Dave Chappelle. This man has been around. He's been in comedy for decades. 
And you know what? He makes fun of everyone. I mean, he makes fun of every race, every, you know, gender, everything. He he has, that is kind of his shtick. That's why he's as popular as he is today, because he says things that kind of make people gasp. And he says things that are controversial. And it is interesting to see now this push against him. I know that there's a specific part of, you know, Netflix's staff that said that they were walking out because of it, because he was sitting there saying that gender is a fact and making other, you know, jokes about transgender people. But I think it kind of should bring all of us back to the place where this sort of woke culture that we've stepped into, and I know that it's much more much more in depth there in Scotland than even it is here in the United States. But I mean, that in and of itself is a privilege, right? (laughs) Exactly. That in and of itself is a privilege to be able to sit there and say, oh, we're going to cancel this person. We're going to cancel that person. Well, at the end of the day, if you keep doing that, eventually everyone's going to be canceled because the things that they said five years ago is not going to hold up to whatever the standard is of the current day. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, that people may have either changed their viewpoints as the years go on or that they may have evolved, but it just means that this sort of new, you know, the fact that they thought that Dave Chappelle was going to get caught up in sort of this woke culture, it doesn't look like it's happening. In fact, I think the real tell sign here is that even though you've got the CEO of Netflix saying that he's apologizing for not handling it in the most sensitive way, well, they didn't take Dave Chappelle's comedy special down. Why? Because they knew that people were going to go and watch it and that it would make them money. So at the end of the day, yeah, they can act like they really care about all of these employees that were offended. But no, they just want those advertising dollars and they know that they're going to keep getting it, especially now that everyone's talking about it. It's a witch hunt, uh, Rachel. It's the witches of Salem. Uh, People are charging around, looking around for targets that they can descend upon. Uh, Not realizing, perhaps, that one day the mob might come for them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I know the stuff that you were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, changing our very language to say that a woman is not a woman. Well, as a woman, I mean, that's offensive in all of the ways that it possibly could be. I mean, granted, I have not been pregnant. I've not given birth. But from everyone that I've talked to, they can tell you that childbirth is one of the most painful experiences out there, and that is specific to women. So this new kind of culture that we're walking into, it's almost laughable because it's from people who claim that they care about human rights, yet at the same time, they're not sitting there talking about all of the humans who are being impacted by the entirety of U.S. foreign policy. I mean, we're not sitting here talking about what the United States has done to the Middle East, how the United States and its policies have completely devastated Yemen and all of the children there who have now created the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. I mean, if you want to start talking about human rights, there's some specific areas that we could have a conversation on And to sit here and to try to change our language and change our vocabulary, I mean, they've just missed it completely. Don't let the pain uh, put you off, uh, Rachel, because (laughs) I can confidently say you quickly forget about it. And tell your mother that if she lived in Scotland, we wouldn't be able to refer to her as your mother uh, anymore. Uh, And it's worth making this point. Half of all the women in the world don't have access to a toilet while people in the West are fixating about the right of a tiny number of people 
to use the women's toilets that mercifully we do have. Now a quick segue to Donald Trump, who doesn't like toilet things, as we know. Uh, he's now created his own Twitter. I joined it today, I haven't tweeted on it yet. Um, what's the prospect of success for that? Oh my goodness. You know, it's funny because even some Trump supporters are saying they're not too happy with this website that he's created. And part of the reason is because, you know, the market is out there to create something that is going to be a rival to the likes of Twitter and Facebook. And that's something we've all been waiting on Trump to do to kind of follow through on whether or not he's going to create his own social media site. Well, he creates it. He calls it Truth Social. And he talks about how it's going to be a way for us to have free speech, to stand up to the tyranny of big tech, all that. But then if you look into the user agreement, you see that you can say whatever you want to, as long as you are not criticizing or offending the platform or its creator. So basically what he's done is he's created this website that sure, it may be great if you're a Trump supporter and you have nothing bad to say about him, that's awesome. But if you're the average person who is going to have some sort of criticism, some sort of complaint of Trump or even the basic social media site that you're using, I mean, I criticize Twitter on Twitter all the time. That's just part of it. Then, of course, that's not going to be the platform for you. Now, what's going to be interesting to see is how long this website lasts, because we saw this happen with Parler that like many you know social media platforms it is forced to use one of the bigger servers it's forced to use you know amazon web services or the likes of that because at the end of the day amazon runs basically our entire internet and so then what happens if something happens on trump's new truth social something is said and all of a sudden you've got the platform being kicked off well there's not much they can do about that as we've seen be the case with Parler. So how long it'll last, I don't know, we'll see. Very interesting, I hadn't thought of that. Um, how about uh, President Biden? How's his uh, polling numbers looking? Yeah, his approval rating dropped down to 41%. And it seems like a lot of the frustration is around how he has dealt with the economy. And Americans are in a place right now, and I know this is something that you're seeing across the pond as well, where we're dealing with supply chain shortages, we're dealing with labor shortages, we're dealing with sort of the last year of policy really coming to a head in a way that is going to end up impacting the entire country. And I know that here we've been talking a lot about sort of those bottlenecks that we've seen in the supply chain. We've seen you know dozens of ships waiting outside of ports in California We've talked about the tens of thousands of truck drivers that are desperately needed. And a lot of people may just see that as a news story for now. But then what ends up happening is they're not getting their Christmas presents that they ordered. They're having to pay exponentially more in order to heat their homes in the winter. And so I think what you're seeing is sort of this building frustration with the Biden administration and also with the fact that, you know, they told Americans to go out and to vote blue no matter who, to vote Democrat. Now we've got a Democratic majority in the House, in the Senate, in the White House. And they're not even passing the measures that they put up that they said that were going to help the American people. So that frustration is there and definitely growing. Is Trump still on the stump? Uh, is he still doing these rallies? He is. It looks like he's kind of going around and rallying for some of the Republic, Republican contenders, rather, that are 
um, that are looking at being elected right now. And we know we heard from Donald Trump Jr. recently. He made it sound like his dad was going to officially run. We still still waiting for that announcement. We'll see how long he keeps us waiting. I'm pretty sure he's uh, going to run if his health uh, holds up. And he looks pretty robust, at least by comparison to Joe Biden. Uh, so the midterms, will the Republicans be fielding Trump Republicans by and large? Or will some of the Republicans be in the anti-Trump camp? So that seems to be the ongoing battle right now, is that you've got kind of those specific Republicans that are going off of their Trump endorsement and that they are really holding on to. And then you've got the others, kind of like Liz Cheney, who are really going to hold on to being the opposite of Trump and trying to get support that way. And I think that that kind of has the power to determine where the GOP wants to go with the upcoming presidential election. I mean, are they going to, which I think that they're going to give in and, you know, let Trump be their candidate for another few years because they know that he is going to be the one to bring in the most money, uh, but it may give them a chance to kind of toy around and see what they're going to make it look like they're going to do. Rachel Blevins, thanks as always for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Let's go to a caller in Washington, D.C., who, if I'm not wrong, is my colleague, Farhan Franchek. Am I right? Hello. Farhan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to call in. And you actually said my last name like how they did in the homeland back in uh, Poland and and parts of Russia. Well, I'm a creature of those old days. (laughs) <laughs> Great to talk to you, George. And you, Farhan. How lovely to hear your voice. What would you like to say? So I have so many thoughts about what's going on with Dave Chappelle, because many people don't know I am a former stand-up comedian. Now, I dabbled in it for just a couple years, but I had two dreams. I either wanted to be the weekend update news anchor on Saturday Night Live or be a news anchor. I want the news anchor route, as you know. Yes, but a very good one. one. Of the things that, <laughs> thank you. Uh, you know, one of the things that people have to remember, okay, if you look back like in the medieval times, you had the jester, right? The jester was supposed to entertain the king, and the jokes were supposed to be about what was going on in the world and all of the death and destruction, but put a nice little funny spin on it. That is exactly what comedians are still doing to this day, what the jesters did. They, they're showing the, uh, you know, the um, economic problems that we've been going through, income inequality, problems with race, gender, all of what society has. And when you start silencing comedians, that is then the end of all free speech because they are literally the last mouthpieces that we have that can say, hey, you big billionaires, like, oh, yeah, it's kind of funny when there's all this racial inequality, like maybe you want to take a look at it. And that's exactly what Dave Chappelle does. You know, they're all yelling and kicking and screaming about the transgender jokes, but what they're not talking about is in the special, first of all, it's a five-part series with Netflix. So the reason why it's called The Closer is this closes out that whole Netflix deal. You watch from beginning to the last episode the journey that he has taken when it comes to the LGBTQ community, when it comes to race, when it comes to gender. You see how he evolves as a person. That's one thing that people aren't talking about, that us true comics are saying, you have to look at everything. He's been doing this for years. For example, 
three years ago in a special Sticks and Stones. He's in Austin, Texas, I believe. Or I'm sorry, he's in Georgia. And he's talking about the future abortion bills that are going to start happening and tells men they need to take a back seat and not say anything because it's not their fight. Where was the big huff and puff about that three, three, four years ago now? You know, and then in his final closer, again, you, you see him where he talks about transgender, and then he also brings up race and all that. But he talks about a comedian that he met who transitioned from a man to a woman and how he had her on his show or he had her open for one of his shows. I believe it was in San Francisco. And he said, you know, she bombed. But then, you know, then throughout the show, she was sitting front row with him. And he was like, you know, we just created such a friendship. And I got to know her daughter. And, and he talks about their friendship and how he's grown from it. And then he talks about how a couple of weeks after their show, she committed suicide. And the first thing that he did was he said he set up a trust for his daughter so that she'd be taken care of when it comes to college, all of that. And then the big joke is at the end that he says, you know, and then I would go up to her and say, your dad was the best man I ever knew, you know, but it's, and, and that's the funny part, but you, they're not talking about that part either. And that's one of the things where I think if people just stop and pump the brakes, you know, when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is not going to go over well, you know, but if people stop and actually Maybe take a couple gander at his other episodes. They'd see that he's been doing this for years, and this is the job of a comedian, to point out all of the things that are wrong with society so that maybe, just maybe, we can all try to make it right. How beautiful. What a beautiful call. Farhan, thank you very much for making it. I usually get interviewed by you. Now I'm interviewing you, and all spontaneously. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> for that call. Let me go stay in Washington, D.C., actually, and talk with Lolita in Washington, D.C. Go ahead, Lolita. Uh, yes, hello, George. I'm a first-time caller here, so bear with me. Just a little bit nervous. I usually don't call into okay. the welcome. program. Okay, welcome. Most welcome. I'm, thank you. I'm very much a supporter of yours, and I have supported you from uh, way back when. Uh, 100%, but I've dropped down to about 90% listening to your conversation with the guy from Oakland. Now, his, I guess he was a bit convoluted and certainly profane in what he was saying. Mm. Uh, while I agree with you that certainly it is class divisions that, the, class divisions that just, you know, is sort of, at the heart of things, you know, this sort of divide and conquer kind of rule. But in this country, especially for African Americans, uh, race trumps all. Race, you know, it goes so deep in the fabric of this country that you cannot separate it. I can't tell you how many sort of leftist groups I've been part of, and the whole race issue comes up, and it's, it's dismissed. So you seemed quite dismissive of the guy earlier who was acknowledging, you know, his, his whiteness, his maleness, and his, his you know, sexuality. Uh, I certainly agree with you that identity politics is off the chart. It's gone, it's being weaponized, and it's just gone to a ridiculous level. But my point is, is that you absolutely cannot dismiss race in this country. No, of course you can't uh, dismiss it. But if we accentuate it, if we fetishize it, we're guaranteeing the victory for the people and the system that oppresses all of us. 
we might feel better uh, because we're, uh, our language is right on and our, uh, our choice of issues and campaigns and so on uh, accords uh, to the point of view that you're expressing, but it won't take us anywhere. Because if we fetishize it, accentuate it, we guarantee that we reduce the number of people who could otherwise be our allies who will come on board with us. That's the point I was trying to make to him. And I also find it a okay, bit... I, just... I can take it from you, Lolita, but I find it difficult from, uh, from a, a horizontal guy in Oakland, California, who's just as white as me, just as straight as me, and just as male as me, telling me that I should be feeling guilty about these things which I didn't choose. God made me what I am. Okay, well, with all due respect, I, I didn't get from him that he was saying that you should feel guilty about it, and I certainly agree that one shouldn't fetishize it, um, but you should acknowledge it. It should be acknowledged and taken into consideration for whatever, you know, sort of strategy, policy, or whatever is being developed. Well, I, I, I agree uh, with that. Maybe it's uh, Oscar Wilde famously said, we were two peoples divided by a common language. Maybe that's what uh, mm. happened there, Lolita. Thanks very much Good. for your call, especially as it was your first time. Now, number six is on the line. Apparently, number six is his or her name. We better hear more. Welcome, number six. Thanks for calling. Come in, your number time is up. It's number six, the prisoner, George. Okay. I was given the number in the village after the last guy that passed away. I'm a first-time caller, George, but I'm ringing you. But I've got distracted now because of the last call you made, last call, you, last person you spoke to. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're going to talk about black issues, have on real black scholars. Talk to Tariq Nasheed. Gerald Horn, there's loads of black scholars that will give the race issue a better airing. But I'm not here to talk about that. I want to talk about Julian Assange. Yeah. My Caribbean mother used to say, out of every bad situation, something good comes. The one thing that good that has come out of Julian being where he is, it is exposed who real journalists, journalists are and what real journalism is in the UK and in America. Quite right, yeah. And Gore there's a precious few of them. Very few. Gore Vidal said before he, after, before he passed, Gore Vidal famously said that he believes that America is run by the security state. It's no longer in the hands of the executive. The president no longer runs that country. That's what his, his last words were. Not his last words, but that's what he said before he passed. I, and I remember him very famously. Julian, the case against Julian, the CIA plotted to kill him in this country. Yeah. And not one mainstream media news channel in this country, George, mentioned it. No. What does that say about the mainstream media in this country, George? Uh, it's criminal. Uh, the, it's a, they're a who conspiracy. Are they, who are they working for, George? They're a conspiracy against the public that they're supposed to be serving. Yahoo News, not exactly the Workers' Revolutionary Party paper, 
Yahoo News did a major investigation with chapter and verse, quotes from 20 former White House and other intelligence sources, many of them named, and revealed that at the highest level, Mike Pompeo, head of the CIA, there was a developing plan to murder someone on British soil uh, if they could not kidnap him, to crash their cars into any Russian embassy car that might be trying to rescue Julian. And nobody even reported it. George, I feel, I'm not joking, George. I say to my children, everything you've ever been told, and I was born and raised in East London, in this country, George, and it's only later in my life that I'm saying to myself, everything I've ever been told in this country was a lie. Teach that to your children, George, and I, and I tell your viewers, your listeners, teach that to your children. They have to study everything that's going on for themselves. Do not listen to anyone in this country. Well, and thank I, you. And, and I'll be honest with you, George, I'll yeah. be honest with you. Yeah. The only information I get about anything that's going on in the world now is from comedians and independent journalists like Jimmy Dore, Aaron Marte, Rana Kalik. All these names are in the fringe, Cynthia McKenna. None of these people are known to the average everyday person. And that's where I get my information from now. People that I admired in the British press, Jon Snow and these people, man, they can go... Yeah, okay, let's uh, stop it at that point. Uh, good one, uh, for sure. Hey you, do you want to know more of what's happening in the world right now? Of course you do. But getting to the heart of the story, well, that's going to take some hard work. That's why here at the Mother of All Talk Shows, we've created that program just for you. Hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds. Get a perspective, an education on stories from all around the world, dissected and discussed with you. Join our debate, vote in our polls on Twitter, tweet your question to George or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about. Join the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Hosted by one of the world's greatest orators, the mother of all talk shows, with George Galloway. Let's make sense of the world together. Uh, the smartest young man in this country, James Giles. James, thanks uh, for joining us. I want to ask you first about this cockamamie conference which is taking place in Glasgow. Uh, the so-called COP meeting. There's so many things come up about it. Thousands of people have come in from overseas, untested, uh, brimful perhaps uh, of COVID, when Scotland's already the worst in Europe. Scotland is the worst in all of Europe for COVID-19. Secondly, uh, the train drivers are going on strike. The bin men are also on strike uh, because they're no longer prepared to work in the rat-infested conditions that they're being asked to work in uh, for the money they're being asked to work for. And thirdly, now, the lawyers have gone on strike and will not handle any prisoners that are arrested in the expected protests at the conference. I mean, I knew the SNP were ludicrously incompetent, but this takes the shortbread, surely. 
Well, it's a mixture, I think, of the devolved government and the wider UK government. You know, when they first got this uh, uh, presidency of the COP summit two years ago, it was great for Boris Johnson. He was there promoting a global post-Brexit Britain. But at best, I think the conference will be a damp squib, and at worst, it will be just an abject humiliation for Glasgow and, indeed, the United Kingdom as a whole. As we discussed last week, many of the world's major players aren't going. And you're quite right, Glasgow, which was a beautiful, beautiful city, it's gorgeous, is going to be in complete disarray. Roads have already uh, been closed, the Clyde uh, Expressway has been shut, so locals are experiencing disruption. The bin men are on strike, as you say, the train drivers, the lawyers. You're bringing over 25,000 delegates, 16,000 police officers accompanying the 25,000 delegates. Wow. To Glasgow, it will be a super spreader event. They don't know the impact it will have. And it feels like something that's really happening to Glasgow and Britain rather than for Glasgow and Britain. And that's the greatest shame, I think. I, I still don't understand why this could not have been done on Zoom. Well, it, it's unfathomable as to why it wasn't done at least in part over a virtual setting. You are, of course, talking about reducing global emissions. You know, Boris Johnson last week was giving a speech in Luxembourg about politicians talking hot air over the climate. And it's now emerged today in the Daily Mirror that in the last week, he has produced a year's worth of CO2 as if a car had been driving for a whole year by using the private jet of Lord Bamford, the magnate of uh, JCB Diggers. You're joking. He flew in a private jet to Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. What, like there's no scheduled flights? Well, like there's no scheduled flights, nor a Eurostar. But not just that. After flying to Luxembourg and complaining about hot air, causing a load of CO2 emissions, he's then flown on the same private jet to Hartlepool for a campaign stop in light of the upcoming local elections, and then went from helicopter from... <laughs> Hartlepool to Wrexham, from Wrexham to the West Midlands, and back down to London. It would take a car driver a year to produce the amount of CO2 it's taken Boris Johnson in a week. So, you know, you want to talk about reducing global emissions. Well, Boris needs to look at his own record first. I mean, his wife, Carrie, I'm sure, would be pretty disgusted. She's a big environmentalist. You could describe it as a bit of a carry-on. It's stunning. I, mean, I don't know what to say to that news. I didn't know it. I'm grateful to you for bringing it to our attention. What about the COVID? Uh, why are we so bad? Why is COVID so bad here? We're an island. In theory, we could have shut the island down, uh, kept everyone away, and not had a single case. Sure. I mean, as Boris Johnson said earlier this week, uh, having the coronavirus jab, and you know, vast majority of people in this country now are double jabbed, doesn't stop one from actually catching the disease and therefore registering as a case. It goes a long way to preventing serious illness or death, but one can still catch it and indeed pass it on, which is why the government's embarking on this booster programme, which so far has also failed dismally. Yeah, that's not gone as well as the A and B rollout, has Ab it? Absolutely not. You know. Uh, the number of Where's mine? I'm, I mean, at my age, I should already have had it. Well, indeed, the number of people becoming eligible each week, less than 50% of them are actually receiving a booster. There was one gentleman highlighted in The Observer today who rang his GP 45 times wow. to try and get a booster appointment and then was told he was ringing the wrong number and he needed to ring somewhere else. He's still not got a jab, by the way. Wow. And so, you know, there comes a point where one has to ask, 
when will the opposition begin to benefit from this? There was an opinion poll out yesterday that said that 41% of people didn't approve of Keir Starmer's leadership. Yet if you look at other opinion polls, the vast majority of the people don't know who he is. And so you get a strange situation where someone's saying, don't know who Keir Starmer is, but I do know he's doing a terrible job. <laughs> well, and that's not illogical. <laughs> the fact that you don't know who he is, ipso facto, well, means sure, he's, he's not, not doing, doing a good, good job. job. Absolutely. But there comes a point where you have to wonder who benefits. The Greens, of course, have been on a bit of a rise in the polls here in Britain recently. They've overtaken the Liberal Democrats consistently now. YouGov recently put them as high as 10%. Whether that actually would translate to 10% of the vote in an election period, obviously it's been untested. Doesn't usually, yeah. But, uh, you know, people are looking for something different. And COP, if Boris Johnson doesn't play his cards right, could massively backfire on him, I think. Well, I think there's a lot of people... I mean, I saw some good pieces in the press today. I see you've got all the papers there in which uh, people are not buying this environmental stuff. They think it's just like uh, the big pharma. It's now big greenery that's going to benefit from this. There's something... I can say this. I will never listen to anyone who tells me what's going to happen in 2060. Or as one thing today I saw, in 2080. Nobody knows what's going to happen in 2080. Oh, that's right. Why pretend that you do? and make policy decisions and expenditures now uh, that will benefit people, you say, in 2080. That's a hard thing for a politician to sell, you know? Well, it certainly is. But the oddity for me is, you know, Britain in particular is really on an uh, ambitious green agenda, if I was being kind. Yeah, but we only produce 1% well, of the world's the emissions. I was just coming to... Why is it so important for us to be the world's leader on this. Well, quite. We've already done a fair amount. There's more to do, sure, but banning gas boilers and requiring everyone to install heat pumps at 10 grand plus per pump per home isn't the Nice answer. work if you can get it, as well, some people will. For sure. I mean, there's going to be a government green grant available for people to get these pumps. The government's already issuing green bonds through national savings and investments. Terrible interest rate, but if you're green-minded, I guess, you know, each to their own. But they've got this budget coming up where they're going to make savage cuts to, you know, a wide range of services whilst investing in... When is the budget? ...like heat pumps. Uh, the budget's coming up very soon. Rishi Sunak uh, will unveil it, I believe, on Wednesday in Parliament. Um, it'll be... It, it, it is Wednesday, yeah. It'll be an interesting uh, budget. Michael Gove in charge of the new levelling-up department... Uh, has pushed for a lot of money to try and get things for the north. There's fears that HS2, the eastern wing of it, up to Leeds, will be scrapped. Uh, that's a project that already is costing tens of billions more than initially thought, but again is part of that green agenda. Obviously, the universal credit, £20 uplift, has been removed now. So it will be a tough budget for the Conservatives to sell. They're hiking taxes whilst reducing services again, whilst pursuing uh, the heat pump agenda, as it were, which people, I think, will question in these tough times. We're I'm definitely questioning the it. the worst winter for a generation, and people will actually, I think, be thinking they'd rather money spent on everyday services rather than heat pumps. Kitchen table uh, issues in the here and now. Oh, quite. Let's take some calls, James. Uh, Kenny is in London. Go ahead, Kenny. Hi, George. Yes, I'd like to make a point about 
capitalism. And then I'd like to ask you a trivia question, because you're always asking us, the listeners, trivia okay. questions. Okay, quickly, though, Ken, quickly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. The term capitalism uh, was actually coined by Karl Marx. It wasn't Adam Smith. Adam Smith called it free enterprise. Yes. Uh, I call it capitalist. Will that do? If you want, but what Karl (laughs) Marx had in mind when he termed it capitalism is by adding, by putting ISM on the end, an ism, he made it seem like it was an ideology, and therefore by doing that, he made it seem like it was something that could be defeated. But you cannot defeat human nature, George, you know? Uh, I've I've heard that all my life. Uh, we try all yeah. the time to influence human uh, behavior. We're talking about it now on the green uh, issues. Uh, yeah. We've talked about it on. I mean, it was once human nature yeah. uh, to uh-huh. think uh, that uh, black people were inferior to white people. It was once human nature to think we should despise gay people. But it is no longer for the most of us, Ken. Yeah. Yeah, but that's why the market needs to be regulated. You need an ethical form of free enterprise. As free as possible, but not too free that uh, nefarious people can get away with nefarious. Well, good luck in finding that. Give me your question quickly. Okay. When Elvis returned to live concerts in 1968 for the first time in seven years... It was a fabulous concert. Fabulous. Yeah, the 1968 comeback special. What were his first words as he sat down as a nervous wreck on stage with He was band? nervous, uh, but I don't recall his first words. Tell me. Was it A, thank you very much, it's great to be back, B, it's been a long time coming, honey, or C, are we on television? <laughs> I'm going to say C. You're correct. He said C, are we on television? And then he went, we're going up, we're going down, we're going I knew, up, down, I knew, down, I knew, up, baby, when you want me to do. Lordy, Lordy, Miss Claudy. Kenny, thank you. You're always a great turn. Let's hear from Alison in London. Go ahead, Alison. Good evening, George. I loved your comment before when we were talking about Julian Assange, uh-huh. um, that you'll be praying for him, and there are millions out there who are as well. Yes. Um, and I hope that you think that Lord Chief Justice Burnett is being added to the case. To me, he looks like a very proper, honest man in a kind of judo-Christian ethic kind of way, and I hope he won't stand for any more uh, American shenanigans. And uh, there's uh, a friend of mine has written, this is an example of other support that Julian has around the world. A friend of mine wrote to 358 churches around the world, a uh, combined total of about 3 million parishioners from Korea to Zimbabwe, United States. They are all praying for Julian because they know what is happening is just not right. And, uh, and I hope we can clear well, up the power, anyway. I mean, uh, those who don't believe... Uh, cannot, uh, of course, uh, calibrate the, the power of prayer. Uh, but those who can't hear the music uh, think the dancers are ridiculous. Uh, as a believer, I have prayed for the release of Julian Assange now for a decade. Uh, I've remembered him in my prayers every single day. 
uh, of that uh, decade. And I feel that our prayers are going to be answered on Wednesday. Is that also your feeling, Alison? I think so. I think um, if you don't uh, believe in a higher power and what is basically, in essence, what is right and good, doing the proper thing, um, what is happening is an injustice. And if anyone thinks that uh, uh, if, if Julian would be transported, uh, uh, extradited to the US, that he wouldn't be treated and persecuted uh, more, they would only have to look at the case of Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower, mm-hmm. um, who has now been put in a, a communications management unit, which actually means practically all forms of communication by him with others will be cut. A few minutes of FBI-monitored phone calls a week with his family is the only human contact he will receive. No sight or, of, of or mingling with other prisoners. And this is done to a gentleman. He was an ex-Air Force Intel analyst who later as a contractor revealed the, the inaccuracies of drone attacks in Afghanistan. Now, That's the, all he did. Uh, tell us the truth, which is all Julian exactly. uh, ever did. Alison, thank you for that lovely call. Uh, There's a legend on the line, so I need to clear the line because it's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. A very varied program. Yes. um, uh, Actually, I wanted to talk about somebody I was quite impressed with today, um, and that was Rory Stewart. (laughs) My former parliamentary colleague. Well, he was on Private Passions on the radio, and I think he's a very independent spirit. And the reason I brought him up is, I reckon he's a real nice guy. He actually, um, well, he didn't like Mr. Johnson, actually, but he previously did some really great work in Afghanistan. Well, you call it great work. He was a, a colonial imperial administrator in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Well, the thing not sure you can be nice in that capacity. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't know the actual position he was in, but the fact was he did help ordinary people to get a better life until recently, and now he's going to Jordan with his family and engaging with Palestinian and Syrian refugees. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, I've got to disagree with you on this one, uh, Norma. Uh, He's a creature of the deep. He's a creature of the intelligence community. Uh, as was his father. Uh, He is a face uh, of a brutal imperialist system, Uh, and uh, I I find him, uh, well, rather different uh, to you. Last word to you, Norma. Yeah, because to be honest, George, I I mean, I don't know as much as you, but if you did listen to Private Passions, which was 12 o'clock on Radio 3 today, I didn't like his music, but he did come across as a real thinking individual man. And I suppose the different impressions we've got are, you know, you've got yours and you know more about me. But I did think he came over very well. Okay, Norma, thank you. It's rare that we disagree, but we do quite profoundly on that one. Uh, Craig says, I'm enjoying tonight's show, my friend. Just to say I really liked your description of Ali versus Foreman. I also thank you for defending Assange. He's a good man, I am certain. Hey, and well done to your son getting to play at Ajax. What a memory for you all. Kind regards, Craig. Thank you, Craig. And uh, a good friend of mine, although I've never met her, uh, and we, but we prodigiously correspond, as we used to say in the old days, uh, Diane Randall. She says, Bob Gill, spot on as always. Thank you for giving him airtime. 
thank you, uh, Diane, for uh, everything. Uh, now, breaking news on the podcast front, while we've been on air, we are now in the top 10 podcasts of all downloads in Pakistan. And don't forget, this week's podcast will be ready tomorrow afternoon. So please check it out and download it from wherever you get your podcasts uh, from. Uh, now, don't forget the meeting tomorrow night, my film show in Kingston in South London. Get your tickets for that. There's still uh, a few tickets left. Don't forget the picket. Uh, there's the uh, South London one. If you want to see the film and hear from me about the film behind the scenes and one or two other things that I want to talk about also, please join me uh, at the Shiraz Mirza Hall in Kingston, South London tomorrow. And don't forget, I'm in Manchester uh, in November. We'll give you the details of that once we've got this South London one uh, out the way. Don't forget the... Picket outside the uh, High Court, the Royal Courts, uh, on Wednesday at 9 a.m. And there's a public meeting uh, in the evening, I think, uh, on that uh, subject. If you've got the graphic for that, please uh, put it up now. Uh, if you don't, tell me in my ear. Have you got it? There's the graphic. Uh, the persecution of Julian Assange. Uh, two fine speakers uh, there. Uh, you can get that at 6 p.m. on Wednesday evening. Well, uh, I've been inundated with calls tonight. I mean really inundated. You probably got that impression from all over the world, uh, and including a larger number than usual of women callers and a larger number than usual of American callers. I'm very, very glad about that. Next week... American viewers and listeners will miss the first one hour of the show because of the change in the clocks in the United States. But you can join us for hours two and three. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, join us next week at the same time in the same place for the mother of all talk shows. The podcast had another incredible week with a rise of 14% in total downloads. That's on top of last week's 10% increase, making us not only one of the fastest growing political programs on screens and on radio, but now in podcasts too. We're now one of the top political podcasts, not just in the UK, but also in Switzerland, Japan, Germany, Thailand, Taiwan, and believe it or not, the UAE. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? If you're a Spotify user, please follow us and share with your friends so more people can enjoy most. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.